Hey, Matt Techman here from Elucidations. Before we get going, I just thought I'd put in a quick plug for Pippa. We've been doing our hosting with them since 2016, and it's been a fantastic experience. So if you have a podcast, you might check them out. They have great analytics, the service is free, and they make it easy to migrate. So if you're curious, visit their website at pippa.io. All right, thanks. Welcome to Elucidations. I'm Matt Teichman. And I'm Emily Dupree. With us today is Linda Martin Alkoff, Professor of Philosophy at Hunter College and the City University of New York Graduate Center. And she's here to discuss identity and history. Linda Martin Alkoff, welcome. Thanks, Matt. I'm happy to be here. Okay, so identity is a big word. We use it for lots of things. I guess we think of that as meaning like how a person thinks of themselves or something like that, but Yeah, what do philosophers mean when they talk about identity? What's the topic? Well, historically, the topic has been personal identity, continuation through time. How do you have an identity that continues from the time you're a child to the time you're an old person? So it's been an interesting metaphysical question that's been very abstract, that doesn't necessarily come up in everyday practice. Except that, you know, Nietzsche suggested that the reason we have these conceptions of identity is for social reasons, because we have to be able to make promises. We have to be able to hold people accountable for actions that they did a long time ago. So how do you do that if there's not something continuous between time frames of our individual experience? So that's been sort of the typical discussion in the history of Western philosophy. But more recently, there's been a discussion about identity categories that are more commonly used in societies that mark us in various ways. And uh, the question of what do those socially recognized categories of identity like race and gender, etc., really have to do with me What do they have to do with who I am as an individual? Where do these categories of identity come from? What do they explain? What do they not explain? And should we continue to use them? And that's become a very lively debate over the last couple of decades in philosophy. And I think it's great that finally this more socially relevant topic has emerged in philosophy. And I think philosophers have a role to play in elucidating the, uh, to use the title of your podcast, the complicating issues involved in that question. Okay, so identity in the sense of the term we're going to be interested in today, maybe is roughly like the identity that you check a box in when you fill out a census form. Like, I belong to this group, uh, I, you know, I'm this race, I'm this gender, the kind of stuff that makes it into like identity cards and like, those sorts of things, or religion, what religion I have. Right. And often there, you know, it starts with your birth certificate. I mean, historically, you had to be identified by your race and your gender on your birth certificate. So the argument has been that, in part, the identities construct us rather than we're constructing our identities. We don't choose 
these identities. They're chosen for us, you know, in a lot of cases. And so it has raised questions about the right of individuals to choose their own identities, to have a hand in the meaning of their identities, and to reject some identities. When these identities are chosen for us, what exactly is being chosen? Is it picking out a property that we have as an individual? Uh, Is it picking out some particular social location that we occupy? What's going on in that imposition of a category? Well, I think the, the main assumption in societies is that it is picking out a property. And that property is understood to be sort of outside of context and outside of history, just a natural property of a person. But in reality, of course, it's much more complicated than that because which properties are considered important and relevant in dividing up human groups is a social question, not a natural question. And... You know, and some of the properties that demarcate groups are obviously insignificant, like your skin color or your hair type or your nose shape. Those are not, you know, biologically important. They're not physiologically important. They're not predictors of behavior or predictors of intellectual capacity. So the fact that those kinds of properties have been given significance has to be related to the history, not just social conditions, but the history of given societies. It's the only way to understand why those properties got picked out. So it is picking out a property, but that doesn't explain anything, right? Because then we we still need to explain why those properties and how those properties are getting characterized and linked as predictors or correlates of other more relevant properties like intellectual ability, moral disposition, and etc. Yeah, and it seems like if you compare, for example, you know, my driver's license, it says male, and it says I'm uh, 5'8", but you might think there's a difference there. You might think, well, it's like pretty straightforward. If somebody wants to find out my height, they just measure it. But like, do you measure what gender somebody is, or do you measure what so like a tool, like a Geiger counter that you can measure somebody's race with, it's not totally clear. So it seems like some of these categories maybe are uh, a little bit different in nature from the like measury type ones or something. Yes, there's certainly more variability within the category male or the category white, for example, than the category five foot eight. It would seem to be that that's, you know, relatively objective. You can measure it and There's only a a very small range of variability with that category. But being white and being male obviously brings us to the question of the one and the many because there's huge diversity of appearance, of experience, of social location. It's mediated by so many other things like class and religion, etc., that the political meaning of it and the, the meaning in every sense of it is so variable that it is limited in its explanatory or has a, a different explanatory value than something like five foot eight. In order to get any kind of explanation from a category like whiteness, you have to add more things in, as was found in some recent elections. It's no longer 
makes sense to ask, well, how do white people vote? You don't really get very good numbers or explanation from that. But if you add white people with whether or not you're rural or urban, whether or not you are a union household, and what your gender is, you can actually get good predictions. So whiteness continues to ha play a role in prediction, but only when it's mediated or connected or intersected with other category markers. And then we can actually get some good predictions. In the case of gender, it seems that the idea that there is a property that could be picked out, though insignificant, and then given political meaning. It seems that that itself we lose our grip on when we actually try to do it. So if you try to pick out a particular property that, for example, makes someone a woman, each one you try to pin down turns out not to be the one. For example, if you say, well, this is from the history of this question, if you say, well, women are the ones with ovaries or who can give birth, well, it turns out that's not the case for many reasons. And you say, okay, well, fine, women are the ones, and then you fill in the blank of all these various biological properties that time and time again turns out not to be the ones. So I guess what I'm asking is, in some cases it seems that identity does pick out a property, though irrelevant. But in the case of gender, there's still the question of whether it is picking out a common property held by all in the category to begin with. Well, I think... Gender is a special case. I mean, all of these to some extent have their specificities, but gender needs its own analysis. And I actually do think there's a property that I've argued for. And I think that property is one's relationship to biological reproduction. And if we formulate it in that way, then we can encompass all the differences in women who are individuals who are demarcated as women in our society because lots of those individuals are not able to reproduce yet or anymore or ever, right? They're not able to reproduce. But say you have a 30-year-old woman who potentially could reproduce but in fact cannot reproduce biologically she has a different relationship to the possibility of reproduction, I think, than men do. She may feel a different loss. I mean, both men and women may feel a loss if they can't reproduce. They may also feel absolute delight that they have escaped <laughs> the possibility of reproduction. There's many variable reactions to this. But there is something different that is lost when a male cannot reproduce and when a female cannot reproduce. female is losing the possibility of going through pregnancy, childbirth, and lactation. So it's a different experience that is no longer there, which again, she may be totally delighted about, or she may be unhappy about than a male. But that property, I mean, I think it's significant because I think girls growing up often see pregnant women and see a future possibility for themselves that boys growing up don't. Now, of course, this is changeable in the future. It may be the case that uh, the possibility of biological reproduction will be equal opportunity across male and female bodies, but it's not at this point. So it's a relationship to a possibility that has a formative effect on girls' imagination of their future and thought processes. But I don't think this is a this property is the one that really explains 
gender identity or the ways in which it has been taken up and made so crucial in so many societies. What I think explains that, though, does have to do with reproduction. We, ha- we are a species that requires two kinds of biological matter to reproduce, and it comes in two different kinds of bodies. Now, the reality is that there's a continuum and there's a huge variety in the actual bodies of females and males. And the binary doesn't really make sense. So the idea that there's only two genders is inadequate to the truth of the biological variability of our embodied existence. But the fact that every society has had some meanings attached to this division of biological labor and these categories of male-female, I think it makes total sense. It's not that cultures have given the same meaning. Some cultures have seen the capacity to give birth out of one's own body as a sign of the dependence and weakness of that body, and others have seen it as the sign of beauty and wonder and strength of that body. So you can give very different meanings to that. But it makes sense that every society is going to develop some meaning, some myths, some uh, value attachments, some religious stories, etc., to this biological division of labor between males and females. It's interesting that it doesn't require them to go toward a binary. Most indigenous groups don't operate with gender binaries. They still, though, operate with gender complementarity a lot and a gendered division of labor in regard to social tasks, economic tasks, sometimes political roles in the society. You have to have some meanings attached to the different roles we play in reproduction, but that doesn't mean that there needs to be, you know, a limit of two (laughs) that are given by any given culture. I think Western culture has been particularly odd in this regard in terms of wanting to limit it to two. Does that mean that in some cultures there's like a third or fourth role that people are expected to play in reproduction? Yes, there's female husbands, there's the Burdash, um, and it's not just a third role in some cases, or fourth role or fifth role, that, you know, is a different form of dress and engagement with social activity, but also there can be specific roles that you're playing in regard to reproduction. So you are you're playing a role in the social reproduction of the younger generation of a very specific sort. It's not contributing your biological material, but it is playing a social role in uh, social reproduction. Yeah, it's interesting. It seems like you're working with maybe a little bit more of an expanded notion of what counts as playing a role in reproduction than you know we were traditionally maybe brought up to assume there is. Yes, and, and that's, I think, in concordance with the best latest research, I mean, that are looking at, you know, the 434 or whatever animal species and insect species that have same-sex sex. And there's been a lot of interesting work to see how the reproduction of the species occurs in these situations. And in many cases, 
a figure who does not contribute biological material to the offspring still plays a vital role in the ability for the offspring to survive. So if you, you know, the concept of it takes a village to raise a child, you need an extended family, you need aunts and uncles, you need, and they can play critical roles in the survival of offspring. And this is true for animals, and it's also theorized to be true for human beings. It's a pretty plausible claim. So this is fascinating. So does that mean, for example, if somebody is bi-gender, is that like analogous to somebody who's a virtuoso at the piano and at the drums or something? Like they can play multiple roles in reproduction? Of course. There's, you know, the, the, the possibilities are, are endless. Yeah, I, I guess my question is, where does the concept of being transgender fit into this if gender is so closely tied either to our relationship to the expectation of childbearing or our relationship to what role we might play in reproduction more generally. How does that fit into all this? Well, I think we're still exploring this, but one thing that's very clear is that what we're today calling transgender is a very old kind of identity that is found in many cultures around the world historically. It is not something new. It is not something Western. And it takes many different forms. So there's not one way in which a single transgender identity is formulated in terms of self-presentation or social role in a division of labor. There's a lot of variation. So there's no one answer to the question. I think philosophers have to become more sensitive to contextual differences in regard to identity and see that the answer to the question of what is identity and also questions like, is this identity oppressive or is this identity not oppressive, is not going to be answerable across all of history and all of cultural differences. You're going to have to look and see in specific cases. And we might be able to demarcate what are the telltale signs that would mean that a particular identity will more likely become oppressive than another, some sort of meta-criteria. But we need to be careful because the meta-criteria themselves may be, we may impose certain Western biases. I mean, feminism in the West has often assumed lately that any gender-based division of labor is oppressive. So if you have certain social roles assigned to females and certain social roles assigned to males, that's inevitably oppressive. There's good reason to believe that because (laughs) so often the social roles assigned in that way constrain women to a very limited sphere. But this is one of the challenges that's coming from feminism around the world and from decolonial feminist theory and from indigenous feminist theory who are challenging the idea that gender-based divisions of labor or gender complementarity is always oppressive. Many are arguing that it's not in certain contexts under certain conditions. So we need to be open to the possibility of finding more variability in the way gender is organized uh, around the world than we have previously thought. Even though I think the question of asking, well, is it oppressive and how do we understand oppression 
are great questions to bring to every context. Given the variability of identity categories throughout history and the importance of being sensitive to the context that you're analyzing an identity category, how can we nonetheless cultivate solidarity within a single identity category or across identity categories in a moment where that solidarity is politically necessary? Yes, I have been writing on this. I just finished a book on rape and sexual violence, and there's more global attention to the problem of rape than ever before, and it stretches from very different parts of the world, from Delhi to Cairo to Paris to New York (laughs) and Mexico City. So the question of solidarity around a, a concrete project of trying to reduce sexual violence is is really critical today. I think that we cannot pursue solidarity by abstracting out our differences and finding some meta-minimalist level of commonality across our differences. I think that's a disastrous way to approach it. I mean, for one thing, you go so minimal and then you don't really have anything sufficient, you know, that has enough content to really build solidarity around. And what we might try to build solidarity around would not, in fact, always translate across context. So I think solidarity has to be built up through actual dialogic cooperation between specific groups and specific contexts in which neither side gets to set the terms of how we're going to do it. And it's very difficult because, I mean, the question of, um, you know, sexual violence raises questions of transactional sex and sex, commodifiable sex. And, you know, should we take a single position on whether or not sex should never be commodified, whether or not all transactional sex involves some form of alienation and oppression, I don't think we can because there are organizations of sex workers who argue for decriminalization. So solidarity requires being open to finding partial coalitions, we may not agree on everything, but partial coalitions between concrete contexts and, and organizations and struggles in a piecemeal way rather than trying to come up with a a global set of terms or even set of definitions of sexual violence that then can be imposed on every context and set the terms for the solidarity. I think that's a a no-go way to proceed. Yeah, so maybe just to take your example, maybe the wrong approach to try to create solidarity amongst people across the world who are at risk of sexual violence is to assume from the get-go without talking to sex workers and learning from their experiences that uh, being a sex worker raises the risk of being a victim of sexual violence and therefore the task from the outset is going to be to how are we going to dismantle this industry uh, or something. And maybe that could potentially be the end conclusion, but if it is the end conclusion, it should be as a result of a dialogue in which multiple voices are participating rather than just something to be assumed from the outset. Uh, Is that approximately what you're getting at? 
Yes. It seems that this kind of messy solidarity that we want to cultivate requires, in the first instance, that people identify with the identity category that is then being worked on in solidarity. So, for example, it would make sense for me and it would be politically advantageous for me to identify as a woman and enter this discourse. But other forms of identification, for example, with my whiteness, would seem very suspect. We would think something is going wrong if I'm strongly identifying with my whiteness in order to create bonds with fellow community members on that axis. What do you think is different about that? Well, actually, I don't think it is different. I mean, I think that identities are these categories that are on our birth certificates and our college application forms, but that's not all of what identities are. I think we need to think about identities in terms of the lived experience of them, the way in which we inhabit our lives, and the way in which we all come from particular histories and experiences. And I think that on the ground, when people use identity terms, you know, that's what they mean uh, often. They, they don't assume that everybody with a U.S. passport shares every political view in common, but that there's both differences and commonalities and identities. So I think recognizing that will bring the category of identity down to closer to everyday usage. Philosophers always want like some, not all, but <laughs> want like some pure way to link the category that emphasizes what is the basis of unity and justifies how the other things are, are less important. And I, I think the on-the-ground usage of people when they talk about black, white, other identities is, you know, much more amenable to recognizing that not everybody white is the same. So well, let's look at the category of whiteness. So it's hugely variable, right, by class, gender, nationality, religion. And yet there are commonalities of experience, right? There's when European Americans came to the United States, there was a very particular experience. They were welcomed rather than pushed away. <laughs> there was They were welcomed sort of by laws that had set aside so that you could more easily become a citizen, own property, vote, and eke out an economic survival, even if it was extremely difficult. So there, there's a history that affects our families, you know, and there's some commonalities in that, even aside from pretty remarkable class differences. And that history has produced a particular family lore and experience that is in common, that contributes to our own lived experience. And then I think that is what explains the differences that social psychologists and political scientists find between whites and other groups. So you find white people tend to trust the police. White people tend to trust their health care providers more than some other groups do. And it's not just because white people may be racist, but because it makes sense, right? It makes sense to trust the police and trust health care providers when your group has been protected by these and given good service rather than 
used in uh, nefarious ways as other groups experienced. So whiteness as a category has explanatory value. It explains why we see these, you know, opinion differences. I mean, it's changing. So half of white people today in opinion surveys will say that racism is a big factor in our criminal justice system and will accept the fact that you need an understanding of racism to understand why we have so many black and brown people in prison. But it's also the case that that percentage of white people who accept that claim is very different from the percentage of black and brown people who accept that claim. So how do you understand that opinion difference? It's not just based on education, it's based on their lived experience in the society, in their neighborhoods, in their schools, in their families. So I think identity is also about this, it's about our history. And so how do we think about ourselves as individuals and having individual right to form our own views in light of the fact that we have these group-related historical differences. I use the concept, here's a nice philosophical big word, hermeneutics. (laughs) (laughs) So I use the concept of hermeneutic horizon to think about social identities. So every individual has their own hermeneutic horizon. And what that means is it is what you bring with you to new experiences. It involves your, you know, the arbitrary individual variation of your own history, your family history, but it also involves sometimes your group-related experiences about macro events to history. Like black people and white people have a different relationship to slavery. We had 400 years of slavery in this society big event of the society and people have different relationships to it. Some maybe benefited economically from it. Some maybe when they hear the the story of slavery they feel guilt, they feel shame, they feel denial and others of course feel rage, trauma, maybe also denial but there's a pattern in those differences and the pattern has to do with our social identities and so that's part of what's in the individual's hermeneutic horizon that's part of what you bring with you to understand any new experience or to interpret some new data or some experience it affects your emotional reaction and your judgment your interpretation because it affects what you're already likely to know and what you may not have much knowledge of. So it doesn't determine any individual to think a certain way. But it does explain why we see these patterns of difference that are group-related. You know, it's non-deterministic, right? We're not determined by our social categories of identity, but they are part of who we are and how we are in the world. And they are something you have to grapple with. I mean, if you're Jewish, you have to grapple with the Holocaust. What is the meaning of the Jewish Holocaust? What is the relationship of the Jewish Holocaust to Israel? Those are questions that some of others of us may be interested in, may do some study around, but we don't have to come up with a considered opinion on that to the same extent that most 
Jewish folks have to. So I think, you know, we can give a philosophically defensible account of what social identities are that can both account for the complexity and variability within them as well as the individual right to and the individual ability to make sense of their own history and develop their own political commitments. But that doesn't lose sight of the fact that we are positioned differently vis-a-vis history. We are positioned differently vis-a-vis social structures. And these things have an ongoing explanatory value in understanding our society and understanding who we are and how we operate in the world. That's really interesting. So it's like, I mean, just to take a simple, unrealistic example, you know, suppose I had spent my entire life walking into dining rooms, and every time I walked into a dining room, somebody immediately pulled up a chair and offered me a seat at the table. And for some re- I don't know why, but for some reason, whenever Emily walked into a dining room, people would just sort of turn their backs, give her the cold shoulder, and not offer her a seat at the dining room. And then after, you know, whatever, 25 years of this, somebody comes up to me, somebody comes up to Emily and says, hey, Matt, what do you think of dining rooms? I'd be like, oh, they're great, welcoming places. I love them. They're so cool. You know, and maybe if you asked Emily, she'd be, yeah, dining rooms, they don't really do for me. You know, they're not fun places to be. So the hermeneutic horizon that somebody brings to a particular experience they're having right now is based on their previous experiences of the same thing. So then maybe that's analogous, for example, to like if you asked a white person, what do you think of our health insurance system? They would have feelings about it that are informed by having mostly had good experiences with it. Whereas if you ask somebody else who's had negative experiences with the health insurance system, whether by design or not, they might not necessarily have a glowing things to say about it. And so too for all kinds of like political issues and all kinds of social institutions. If the social institutions systematically treat different people differently, that's going to affect the way the different people feel about them and, and so forth. Yes, and, you know, there's a feedback loop, I think, is what you're suggesting between how you're treated in the, you know, given a chair or ignored, um, and then how you come to see yourself, how you come to develop your capacities. And, you know, philosophers have been making claims like this at least since Hegel. <laughs> there's a, What we think of as who we are is in part the product of interaction that we've had with in society at a macro and micro level throughout our lives. That is what sort of creates our sense of ourselves, whether we see ourselves as being important or having value, how confident we are intellectually, not just because we're slavishly accepting the viewpoint of others. No, it's because you don't have the capacity to develop your intellectual capacities your ability to articulate your views, to test your views, to to improve your views if nobody ever listens to you, if nobody ever takes your views seriously. So you don't have that kind of engagement that can change, you know, who you actually are in the world and how you understand yourself and what your skill set is and what your characteristics are. So the, you know, the idea that some people are confident and other people are tentative is something that's so often socially produced and socially caused rather than something that's just inborn or spontaneous and natural. And that's often how we do think about identity. It's not just a category. It's also like, who am I? What kind of person am I? You know, what, what are my capacities and what are my dispositions and, and the way in which we think about other people and we 
define them or demarcate them or describe other people often has to do with these capacities which turn out to be socially caused to some extent and not just individual variability. So I think that's part of what, you know, the kind of everyday on the ground meaning of identity, you know, when we think about how we describe other people. And so that feedback loop is very important to acknowledge and think about and then figure out ways to redress the bad effects of it. And it's often the effects are group related in a variety of ways. You can do it on the basis of being prejudiced against somebody for their looks, for their weight, for a disability, as well as for gender, race, nationality, and religion, and, and, and all these different ways in which people can react differently, and then they're producing group identities, actually. They're producing the patterns of group identity that they then create, like Miranda Fricker argues in her book. <laughs> it seems that there's at least two ways you might intervene in this feedback loop. One is to reclaim the category in a way where you start to define the category in ways that are not limiting, that don't inhibit the development of some positive personality trait or capacity. And another intervention would be to kind of leave the identity game altogether, if that's even possible, to think, well, we already know what this category has in store for us, so why not just identify with it less strongly? Why not just move towards constructing a social order that no longer includes them? What's your view on these two different paths? Is there another path? Is there a shortcoming to one or an advantage to the other? Well, I don't think that eliminating identities is a possible path because I do think that the primary way to understand identities is historical. And, you know, if it was biological and we could say, look, the biology is wrong, then that's end of story. But it's historical. And so in an odd way, I think history has a longer reach <laughs> than any kind of naturalistic or biological arguments do because it's the history of treatment that has produced you know, and this varies according to which identity you're talking about, but I don't think it's really possible to interact in the world in ways that don't animate your identity in which people won't be responding to you in a certain way. It, you know, your body type obviously makes a difference, but most people can't escape their social identity. In other words, escape the triggering of a certain kind of reaction or action just by saying, well, I'm not that. They're still going to be seen as that because most of our identities are visible in some way. You can kind of downplay it, but not everybody can. Most people can't really downplay. I mean, even females, males, I mean, you can't always downplay body type, you know, depending on your body type. But that doesn't, you know, mean everything is hopeless. I mean, what most of feminist philosophy has been doing is to try to figure out, well, where is gender identity relevant? Where is it not, right? <laughs> so it's acknowledging that gender identity exists, but reconfiguring it from the center piece of who you are as a person, 
that determines everything, right? That's the old sexist view, is that everything about you ultimately comes back to your sexed identity or your gender identity. And that's clearly an implausible thesis and lots of ways to show that. So you can displace its centrality and you can do this with whiteness and with other forms of identity also. You can, and I think this is what we're doing, is saying, yes, it is a part of me, but it is it doesn't explain why I chose this field rather than that field. It doesn't explain everything about me. And I think that's the better way to go, because I think if we try to eliminate it, we're going to be less able to deal with the social responses that we're going to get. I don't think it's a realistic form of social change. In regard to whiteness or racial identity, I think the denial of history is a serious problem. It's one of the main ways that racism works is through denying history. And so denying the uh, relevance of these social categories of identity is in some ways an attempt to say history doesn't affect me. But of course it affects all of us. That's not to say that whiteness will always exist. There may be, I don't think it's going to be the next generation, (laughs) there may be in the future because race and ethnicity, I mean, are, you know, many people date the existence of racial categories to the modern colonial period around the 15th century. So it didn't always exist in the way it does today. Hopefully it won't always exist in the future. But you can't just by a trick of individual volition make it go away. It has to be through actually changing the social structures and the material conditions and the material culture. That is what is going to make it become less important and maybe one day go away. Yeah, that's actually exactly what I was wondering based on what you just said. Because the first thing you said was that it's probably not possible not to have these kinds of identities, given where we are right now. But then that made me wonder, is it possible maybe over a long period of time to mutate the way our society is set up gradually, such that eventually there wouldn't be any such identities? And if so, would that be a good thing to try to do in the long term? It seems like maybe there would be a way of doing that that wasn't like um, denying your history, but trying to move away from it. Maybe in the way that, like, you know, we view something in the past as a mistake, and we want to, you know, do better in the future or something. Right. Clearly, there, it's already there's an ongoing change in people's lived experience of whiteness, for example, and and different ways of inhabiting white identities. But I think you know that the question is just as you raise, how to do it in a way that doesn't deny that history. And the history, I think, is going to have a long reach. Even after the United States becomes majority-minority in 2042, we have lax inheritance laws, which means that you can inherit a lot from your parents who inherited from their grandparents, who inherited from their parents, and so forth. So and most of what we own is our in our houses, right? So the property values of houses in white dominant neighborhoods is way higher. Even if like the brick and mortar is not that better or different than the actual house in a black or brown dominated neighborhood. So this material legacy of advantage which goes back from the beginning of the founding of the country 
is going to have a reverberating impact through the generations in which whiteness is part of why you are economically surviving better than some other groups. So we, we're going to need the category to explain that difference. Otherwise, you know, people say, well, I'm doing economically fine because I work hard. And so they cut off all, you know, explanation of the historical set-asides that families got. I mean, my, I'm half white. On the white side of my family, they came over from Ireland, dirt poor, semi-literate, but they were able to homestead. So they were able to, you know, take some land and grow some things on it, sort of using a Lockean theory of value, sent a picture to the United States government that they had done some agriculture, built a house, sort of a shack on the property, and that picture the U.S. government then took and sent them back a property deed. That homesteading capacity was not given to everybody. It was given to European Americans largely. So, I mean, my family's still not really out of the working class, but they had some land and could survive. Because of that, it makes a difference. One thing that we hear a lot from white nationalists is that attempts to redress past racial injustice are a form of erasing history, and that they want to preserve history or what they view as history by preserving their racial inheritance. And so there's a sense in which simply saying we have to remember history is not enough to guarantee that we're using these identity categories and the history they bring with them in the right way. Um, History doesn't have its meaning written on it. I mean, so it always is interpreted what's important, what's unimportant about history, But I think history is the best antidote to history. (laughs) So now I think a lot of people know that many of the symbols of the Confederacy that are in our public parks were created in the period when Jim Crow was arising in in the beginning of the 1900s. And some of them, I mean, some of the flags in the South changed in the 1940s and 1950s. So the claim that these are simply markers of a historical moment or outside of politics, you know, there's actually no basis for it. They were politically motivated at a particular historical moment to push a certain agenda. But I think that um, it's pretty easy to say that some histories are very exclusivist and other histories are more inclusive. So if we tell the history of the Civil War only by telling the suffering of the white Confederate soldiers and downplaying or underemphasizing or completely ignoring the conditions of African peoples in the South, I mean, it's pretty easy to say, look, you just can't get away with that. It's just not even if you want to honor history, then you have to like be more comprehensive and more inclusive than that. And then what you have is you have a series of experiences 
that are not necessarily compatible with each other, right? So you have conflicting narratives of what was the Civil War really about and conflicting narratives of suffering. And I think that invites a democratic participation and discussion to negotiate those differences and find a way to develop a new narrative, a new accounting of what does it mean to be um, a United States citizen? What is this country really about that can be as maximally inclusive as possible of all the different contradictory politically positive and politically negative elements that have made up U.S. history. And it's going to be, you know, a complicated story. I think we need, though, a new accounting. I think we do need a new understanding of who are we, how did this country come about, and how has it differentially impacted different groups even today. We need something that's realistic. And I think most people are motivated to know the truth, actually. I think most people are motivated not to be played by their government <laughs> with um, false fairy tales that tell, you know, very skewed perspectives. I mean, I think most people can handle the truth, and most people would be interested in knowing what the full truth is, and then coming to a different narrative account of, of what that means for national identity and racial differences. Linda Martin Alcoff, this may just be a limitation of my hermeneutical horizon, but I really enjoyed this, so thank you very much. Thanks for having me. If you have any questions about today's episode, give us a holler on Twitter at at elucidationspod. And as always, you can post a comment to our blog at lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu, slash blogs, slash elucidations. On the blog, you can also explore our full back catalog of previous episodes. Thanks again for listening. Thank you.